Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the January 2017 podcast. Happy New Year, Inner Circle members. And we're going to be continuing our new format. We had a lot of amazing feedback from the different style that we did in December, where Lydia and I are doing these podcasts together. And we also heard from some members that they wanted to hear technical stuff as well, not just, you know, getting into the business and lifestyles. So this year, what we're going to do is depending on whatever the content is that we're delivering that month, if it's more lighting focused, if it's more camera focused, if it's more lens focused, we're going to be tailoring the podcast to kind of fit what we are doing each month. So I want to kind of really immerse you in if the month is going to be about green screen, which it is this month, we are going to be talking a lot about lighting in general, basically uh, answering a lot of your questions. And what I really love about these questions this month is it's a bit about really helping all our members out with future projects that they have. And we're going to be going through those and I will be giving you my experience and advice on how you can pull these off and lighting suggestions for your upcoming projects. And Lydia is here as well. Hi, Lydia. Hello, everybody. And clearly, I'm not going to be doing a lot of talking on this podcast because it's all about lighting. So my role is to interview Shane on the really, really technical ones, just so that makes it more fun, more interactive. And if I have anything to interject, I will. So let's dive right in. First question. Hi, Shane. Happy to be a part of the inner circle. As a filmmaker, where I struggle the most is achieving the look I want, setting the mood for a scene by lighting it right. I mostly do documentary stuff, but also corporate shoots. Now it is time to move on, stretch a little longer, and I have set myself a challenge. How do I create 
the most cinematic looking image, the colors and the feel. Where do I begin and what lights do I choose as a starting point? My next shoot will be inside and outside a merchant ship reconstructing a World War II scene and a fierce attack on it. How do I get that gritty feeling and setting the mood for it? We will be shooting on a C-300 Mark II with Canon Primes both indoors and outdoors during the night. We will be shooting in narrow halls, sleeping quarters, cabins, the mess, and outside on deck. It's a big ship and it's safely anchored in the docks. Any starting points would be highly anticipated. I will be using professionals to help me out, but I need to start out somewhere myself at one point, and this is it. Thanks and best regards from Sven Rune Skilnand, Norway. All right. So, Sven, this is a great question, and I wanted to really address this in a way that this is kind of how I start creating on a movie. You are talking about this documenting this World War II merchant ship and... So your script is basically the idea of this, you know, attack on it and what the crew and everything that they are going through and their emotions and all that stuff. Well, I like to treat these documentaries just like treating it like a feature film. I mean, you go through systematically taking the script. The script for a documentary is kind of the, the thread of the story and the interviews kind of help you set the scene and they become the script by these interviews, taking them through the lives that these people experienced during this attack. I would say, you know, break it down just like you would break down a script. So you want it to feel immersive. You want it to feel gritty. Well, if that's the case, you're definitely going for a more handheld feel. So I would be shooting uh, this whole sequence handheld. The other thing is with the Canon C300 Mark II, that's a great camera. It's a great low light camera. So you're going to be able to take advantage of a lot of practical lights that exist on the ship itself. And now what I find with the Canon series is it's not like you turn all your lights on in the ship and just consider that, okay, I'm ready to go. What I find is you turn a lot of lights off on the ship. When I shot Need for Speed, we found that with the Canon sensor, it's, it's a sensor that energizes light, very unlike the red. The red does not energize light. The red captures light. The Canon energizes it. So when we were shooting the night sequences for Need for Speed, I was turning whole city blocks off of one side of the street. So if the, there were street lights on both sides, I was turning all one side off, so I had a side light. So the car wasn't flat as it drove down the road. The light was coming from the top and from the side and not coming from the other side. So imagine, you know, if you had a street and you had on both sides, you had lights. That means it's going to be lit very flat. So by turning one side of an eight block chase sequence, I was able to create mood. 
Well, you want to take your ship and do the same kind of thing. So you want to make pockets of light and pockets of darkness. And creating a cinematic look is all about lighting in layers. And lighting in layers is usually is using darkness uh, as a layer as well, because that creates depth and dimension. If everything is lit, uh, that can work very well as a background if your person in the foreground is silhouetted. So... But if you're moving through a ship that's under attack, you want to be pulling back with these people. You want to be pushing them. You want that emotion on their faces and you're going to want them going in and out of light and, and having it, you know, they go under a hot source and now they're, they go dark, but they're silhouetted by, you know, the light that they just passed under. And then all of a sudden they're brought up on another light. And then you can use mixed colors like, you know, a lot of times when these things went under attack, they went into this red mode. So you can you can have the people in the engine room being under like uh, those lights that lit the engine room. So you could kind of see everything you wanted to see. And then that's also mixed with red lights that are in hallways. I mean, there's a beautiful way that you can create depth and dimension in a cinematic look with the use of color, the use of contrast, pockets of light, and light, pockets of darkness. And the second thing I would do is choose not Canon Primes to shoot your project on. I would probably go with much older glass because you want to create this gritty look. So you're going to want to use lenses that are kind of much older. I would say from the 60s, let's say, or early 70s that don't have the intense coatings that all our lenses have that don't flare much. So make it, you know, about creating this gritty look by going with glass that that really wants to be the, it's the soul of your film. Camera is one piece of that soul, but the, the second and almost more major part of the soul of your film is based on the glass that you use. So I would look and uh, investigate maybe, you know, going, I don't know if your Mark II is probably got an EF mount on it. If it has an EF mount, then I would try to go back to the old Nikons in the early 70s or the Leica Rs of the early 70s, you know, diving in to see if you can find some old 60s glass. Anything that's going to give you a unique and different look because it's something that you really can't do in post. That glass, that the way it handles flares, the way it's lower contrast, the way it really sees a face and and also takes in the the uh, contrast of the scene is much different and very difficult to try and do in post when you're starting with something that is, you know, a very modern lens. So that's that would be my advice to you. Do not worry about this camera delivering great imagery in this boat. You're going to turn that thing on and all of a sudden you're going to say, oh my God, look how it energizes the light. I got too much light. And then you start turning stuff off and then you start to create those pockets of light and pockets of dark. And along with using some nice colors to uh, color contrast and add that cinematic feel, then you're using a handheld style of grittiness to be able to add that to your 
your project, and then the icing on the cake, which is the soul of your project, is selecting the right piece of glass to to uh, take that story even higher. And I think going back and using older pieces of glass that you can then get, you know, very inexpensive EF mounts to adapt and really take your story to the next level. And I think that with these techniques, you're going to knock it out of the park. And I also think, you know, from a, a story standpoint, you know, creating the idea and the intensity of this attack is going to also think about some interesting angles that can be very unique in a ship. Rigging stuff very up and in corners high, being able to, you know, get back as far as you can and shoot uh, so you create uh, mid-ground, foreground, uh, extreme foreground is going to be very uh, good for you to be able to create that depth. So you're creating a lot of shadow, like putting even the, the camera back in between the engine rooms or, or you're seeing, you know, big elements in the foreground and people are moving in the background and running and, you know, doing whatever they're, they're doing to uh, help in you know, responding to the attack on the ship. You can shake the camera a lot every time you feel like they're getting hit. There's a lot of great little, you know, tidbits and tricks that you can do to uh, intensify this drama that you're putting together for this documentary. Okay. And the only thing that I would say, Sven, is that all of your experience as a documentarian and corporate shoots will serve you well. So. You know, everything we have learned in life always comes to play on a future project. So go in there, knock it out of the park, and we want to hear how successful your shoot was. The next question comes from, let's see, oh, anonymous. Okay, cool. So I am shooting in a hospital waiting area where I would like my mood bluish and contrast in the same time with natural light. The waiting area is close, no source of light coming from outside. So that might mean closed without an outside yeah. light source. I am using a red Epic camera with a Zeiss CP2 lens. So I'm thinking to fill the area with 2.5K HMI indirect in. A 2.2 white solid and two 120 Kino Flow as backlight. What do you think? All right. So hospitals are uh, kind of a very unique place, and there's a lot of light that is usually in the ceiling. And I really want you to look at the short film that I did with Po Chan. She directed this film called The Ticket. It was a short film we did for Canon, and I used the Canon 1DC. Now, the way we were able to uh, obtain this coolish blue look within the hospital, which I love that vibe because it looks very sterile and very clean, is by changing your color temperature on your Red Epic. So depending on what those fluorescents are in the ceiling, you're looking at sometimes they're warm white, sometimes they're cool white. If they're warm white, you're going to be definitely wanting to go into the 2,000 to 2,200 
Kelvin color temp on your camera to be able to make that coolish. With cool white fluorescents, they're a little colder. Some are 4,300 Kelvin, some are 3,800 Kelvin. So I usually play around the 2,700 Kelvin range to make those fluorescents look very coolish and a nice kind of cyan tone because you're enabling the green within the fluorescent and then by cooling it up, it creates this beautiful cyan tone. So that's where I would start. And I would not necessarily, you know, I would embrace that overhead light. And by in your color, I mean, in your, uh, yeah, in your color correction bay, you can add contrast and really snap it. And that's what we did in the ticket. That's I just used overhead lights that existed within the hospital. And then what I did, which I really liked, is I had the hallways as just cool white fluorescents. So more that 4,300 Calvin. And then the, the uh, rooms I did in warm white. So they had a warmer feel. Same amount of green coming from both fluorescents because they're not color corrected. I'm just embracing what is there at the hospital. And the warm white gave the room a different con- you know, color contrast compared to what the hallway was. And it created a really nice sense of depth. And what I, in the ticket, the story is, you know, this, this hallway was more of a cold tone, which represented our uh, female lead's death, that she was, uh, you know, dead and not really there. And the rooms represented warmth and more life. So that's how I kind of tackled that. For you shooting in this waiting area, I would try to embrace the overhead fluorescence. If you want to come in and bring in a a source that feels more directional, then what we did was we had the same Kino flows that you know, were, I mean, the same fluorescents that were in the ceiling. So if they were, or they were cool whites, I put cool white tubes in my Kino flows and I moved them around and pushed them through big four by fours or four by eight diffusions. So the quality of light felt the same. Now, if you want to motivate the idea that there's a, in this waiting room, even though it doesn't have any windows or that you're going to see, you can motivate that type of light and I would motivate it somewhat hard. So you could, you know, you could, or hard or semi soft, you know, use your 2.5 that you talked about, back that up. If you have like a tableau of people waiting in chairs and the chairs are usually right up against the uh, the wall, and that's what we dealt with on, you know, the ticket, you know, he's literally standing and sitting next to a wall. You embrace the sterility of that. You embrace the um, the kind of sense of, of that, white world and you, you know, you crank it up and it, it, the white is a beautiful cold white. Their skin tones look really nice and cool as well. And you could bring that 2.5K in and 
kind of put a cut on it so it feels like there's a window just off to the side of frame that's cutting across, maybe hitting their legs. If they're reading magazines, you're getting it to play on the magazines. Maybe you keep it off their face. You let the top light that exists in the space be the top light. And then if you want to jazz up like it feels like more direct ambiance, you know, the ambience that's coming from those windows that we're creating in our mind, our, our dream space of, uh, of reality, you know, we're, we're bringing that light in. So we have the, the hot 2.5 K that we're going to put a topper on and, and race it across, you know, side, sidey. Don't, don't bring that 2.5 frontal. You want to be very sidey with it. So you're not blasting the back wall. Let the, the fluorescence from above take that and, and illuminate that. You're going to come from the side and then you could take your kino flows with two point you know with the cool white fluorescence or the warm white again whatever is in the ceiling that exists within this hospital and you could push it through a diffusion that the 2.5k sneaks under so you have the 2.5 hot light coming in that you've topped off and and it's sneaking under the Kino flows that's pushing through like a four by frame that's then illuminating their faces and giving them contrast. So instead of just being at all flat, you're coming in and assisting that and and bringing, you know, so you least have a uh, two to one ratio I always find when people go radical in these hospitals where it's like two, three to one or four to one ratio on the downside. So when we talk ratios, if you're at a four on their face and then the, the, then your fill would, I'd say in that kind of space, two stops down to two and a half stops down on the fill is as far as you really can go. If you go any more than that, it just doesn't feel like they're in a hospital because the light's coming in from all over the place. So if, um, if you keep it to, you know, two and a half stops down on the fill or maybe two, you got to just judge what's going on in the space. And then you can, you, you can gear it towards that. But I wouldn't go hyper contrasty in this space. You can go hyper contrasty with the overexposure by using your 2.5 K hard, or maybe you soften it up a little bit with uh, half soft frost, but it still has a uh, nice direction. And it feels like it's coming through these, these windows that we really don't see, we're creating them. And then again, you push in uh, a little more light through the, uh, through the, you know, under their faces with the Kino flows. Now, if you're embracing the green in that space coming from the cool whites, cool white fluorescence or the warm white fluorescence, you're going to have to put green on that HMI to match the green that's coming from the fluorescence. If you do not, your HMI will look very magenta. And when you get in your color correction bay, it's, you're going to have a hard time dialing that magenta out. So you want that to come. It can be a totally different color temp. No problem. You know, if you're, if you're down at 2900 or 2700 or 2200, you're going to be warming that HMI up anyway because it's going to be way too cold. So if you're trying to create that bluish look by changing the color temperature of your red epic, then your HMI, if it's just naked, is going to be very cold. 
like super cold. And that's not going to look so great. So you're probably going to be putting half CTO or CTS, which I use, straw, Roscoe, half CTS on that light at least to then put your green on it. And your green will warm up the light as well. So it becomes more like a three-quarter CTS because the green warms it up two to 400 Kelvin. So based on that, you're, you're playing around in a world that you use the color temp of your Epic to take the existing fluorescence and the existing world of the hospital and changing it to a coolish blue tone. Then you're going to come in and use a different color temperature to be able to maybe make your rooms or practicals in the background a different warm tonality that you then can and and those those practicals whether they're fluorescence or you know keeping with that green vibe you can make them a warmer fluorescence so you get the color contrast mixed with the cooler fluorescence that you have going on in the foreground. Then you can use your HMI source using half CTS or three quarter CTS and matching the green level that's coming from your existing fluorescents that are in the ceiling. Uh, you're matching that and, and creating some, some overexposure contrast by rifling in a, a hard or a semi soft light that kind of rakes the, the bodies and, and their magazines or whatever they're, you know, have in the waiting room. So that is what I have for you to kind of, you know, take your hospital waiting room area to the next level. Lighting is so great because there's so many options and choices and creativity. Next question is anonymous. Hi, Shane. This may seem like a silly question, but how do you get your HMI lights to be so amber looking? Like when Sonny was sitting on the bed cleaning the sword on Into the Badlands. All right. So this segues beautifully from our last question. Well, what I use is even though I'm using HMI light and, you know, an 18K is what I lit that with. I lit it with one light blasting into the room and we wanted it to feel late afternoon. And by doing that, I was able to put full CTS and half CTS. So full CTS brings the HMI to 3,200. And then another half CTS brings it down to like 2,200. Now, that's how I started. So I made it, you know. Now, what we ended up seeing was by going that way, you're able to then slide your Calvin to like 4,600 because you don't want to go all the way to 5,600. And I'll tell you why. 5,600 Calvin is going to deliver whatever is outside as white. Now, there's a wonderful thing that happens in late afternoon. Late afternoon the intensity of the sun is now much more down by the horizon. So imagine the sun higher in the sky. It's hitting asphalt. It's hitting buildings. It's hitting, you know, dirt. It's hitting grass. And that, you know, blasts color temperature into the area, which feels much more white. When you bring the, when the sun comes down more on the horizon line, that bounce and that intensity of the sun that's 
kicking around and blasting into everything is kind of gone. And now what's really prominent is the sky. And that blue sky is creates a whole different color temperature. And it usually is anywhere from 10 to 14 Kelvin, thousand Kelvin. So what I like to do is when you go full and a half CTS on an HMI, like we did the 18 K and then I go to 4,800 or 4,600 Calvin on my uh, red dragon, I'm putting it somewhere in the middle. So the, the light that I'm using the HMI that I've put full and a half CTS on now looks warm because it's 2,500 Calvin difference because of where we've put it at 4,800 and it's like at 2,200. So 2,500 Calvin difference. So that's going to look warm and, and late afternoon. And then the light that's coming into the room, that's basically just the ambience outside. So that ambient light that is the sky that's bouncing off of buildings, that's all the stuff that's happening outside is now filtering through the window and that's filtering in and it looks cold and it's a little colder than normal which is what happens with that late afternoon light. Shadows get deeper, contrast gets more extreme, and the tones of the sky become much more blue, and the tones of the sun become much more warm. So that's what we created with uh, Into the Badlands on that specific shot. That was full and a half CTS on the 18K HMI coming into the room. And then we set our camera around 4,800 Kelvin. And that enabled the, the light to be very warm and late golden and late afternoon feel of that sunlight right on the horizon line. And then the ambience that was in that was just coming from the sky and from you know, bouncing off of buildings and everything that filtered through the windows that became a colder tone to add to that beautiful cyan blue green qualities that you can see in all the shadow areas all right all right next question we're very excited from mike d get ready mike your answer's coming. Hello, Shane. New member here and loving the info. Thank you, Mike. We're glad to have you. I come from a still photography background, so I have a good foundation in lighting, though only lighting for still photos, mainly using flash and reflectors. I'm a lost pup when I go to light entire rooms for moving picture scenes. Renting lights to practice with is not a good option for me, so I plan to start buying lights and lighting gear so that I can practice lighting at my leisure. My main lighting objective is to learn to light for the small feature films which I'm creating. Can you point me in the direction regarding what kind of lights to buy? Are there some go-to lights that I must have? Would it be better to drop most of my money on bigger lights like older magnetic ballast HMIs, which aren't too costly. Someone suggested I buy mostly hard lights because I can always make a hard light soft but can't make a soft light hard. I don't want to buy anything that can't be plugged into a standard 20 amp outlet. My budget is five to eight thousand. I just signed up for an all day lighting workshop in a nearby city. Hopefully, this will get me some insights, but I would really appreciate your thoughts as well. Thanks. All right, Mike. This is a great question. 
I find that many of the still photographers that are moving into motion uh, love to buy their lights because most of you bought your lights, your flash and your strobes and all that. And it's, it's how you created and it was kind of, you know, how you rolled out. You rolled out with your lights and your your strobes and you, you brought them to the projects and this is how you create it. So I really, you know, I'm a big rental guy, but I completely understand your scenario because you want to learn and you want to practice and you don't want to always have to rent a light to be able to practice and you don't always want to rent a light to be able to, you know, shoot your small feature film projects. So the person that suggested getting hard lights, that's very true. Hard lights can always be softened, but soft lights can never get harder. So I find that really great hard lights to use are essential. I also think it's worth getting some soft lights as well that can fit into your budget. So you're going to need some HMIs. And uh, HMIs that you can plug into an outlet, I would suggest getting probably two 1200 PARs. You can get the old LTM 1200 PARs, magnetic ballasts for very cheap. These are two lights that can be a hard light, can bounce, can diffuse. You can do everything with these things. And it comes daylight balance. So you have some punch and power to be able to, you know, bring up your values to be able to hold detail out of windows and stuff like that. So I would try to get at least two 1200 pars. Anything below a 1200 par, I pretty much do not use. I just feel like they, they have no use. The 575s, maybe an 800 Joker to be able to put into uh, a you know, a Chimera or something like that I use, but I use very rarely. Uh, 1200 pars are like a standard operating light that I have on every job that I do. So I would opt for getting a couple of those. I'm trying to stay within your budget here. You're going to be spending five to eight K. Well, I'm always going to go to the eight K. You shouldn't have given me three more thousand dollars, Mike. <laughs> so, spender, Mike. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, all my producers are always telling me like, dude, what is with you? You know, you're spending way too much money. You know, you got to bring this down. And I'm like, okay, I understand, but I need my lights. But yeah, so I would say the next thing I would get is a, there's a light that I use a lot and it is the Westcott spider light. And the kit is very inexpensive. I think for $1,500, you get two or th three lights and you also get the, you get the big, like you get a 32 by 48 or 46, like Chimera soft source in there. There's also a, a, a 24 by 32. And then there's like a 10 inch by 30. 
I use these things all the time. They're so lightweight and they're so compact that you can rig them everywhere. Like I stick them to ceilings. They're so lightweight. You can grab, you know, one little single point and all of a sudden you have this beautiful soft source that you can use as a top light over a dining room table because they're, they're so shallow. The spider light is I'd say under 16 inches of depth on that thing. So you can literally, you know, use it as a beautiful top source uh, over a dining room table. You can take the 10 by 30 bank and and use for, um, I use it for like night driving in cars, uh, driving down the road. I mount it on the hood and that becomes like a, the uh, ambience of of your headlights bouncing off the road. There's a lot of great things that that spider light kit will do for you. And uh, it comes with like daylight balance CFLs that are not bad at all. I couldn't believe how good the quality and the CRI out of them was. They were uh, high 80s to low 90s on those. And with just a little minus green, like I use eighth minus green on those things, it trims them out to a, a little better color color temp, uh, dialing a little of the green that's coming out of the C- CFI, CFLs. The other thing that I would get is a Leco and Park Hands. Park Hands you can get for a dead ass cheap. I mean, I, it's unbelievable. I think you can get those things for like 60, 70 bucks. A lot of old theatrical houses are changing over to LED or to HPL, which is the, um, halogen. And you can really take advantage of these park hands that are 1K park hands. You can plug them into, you can put two into a 120 amp circuit. They have a ton of punch. You can put all different colors of gels on them. They contain themselves. So you don't have to use a lot of flags. And again, I use a mix of these soft kind of sources mixed with HMIs and kind of hard light that I can then bounce, par lights that I can bounce or use as hard. And then I use theatrical lights, park hands and Lecos. Lecos are great for, again, you said you're going to be a very small, independent, short films. Uh, the Leco flags itself. So it's like having a grip inside the light. You're able to use the blades to only blade it to whatever thing you want to hit. I use it as hard slash sources. I use it as uh, hitting into bounce boards and not having it go all over the room because I'm able to control with the blades. I can use iris. I can use them as spotlights. You know, they're just great applications for that. And you can get those on the cheap as well because they're turning over to LED technology. So a lot of the the halogen bulbs are still available and available on the cheap. And then I would say playing around with, you know, I just buy a lot of little lights that you can get at Ikea 
like those little gooseneck lamps that I just rig into the ceiling and I can use them as picture lights. I buy household fluorescents from from Home Depot and I just use those to put behind a wall, you know, like put behind a, a cabinet or put it in the background to illuminate a wall or, you know, whatever the, the case may be. But you you're using some DIY technology along with buying some some lights that are are good you know Hollywood uh, lights that that are going to maintain a, a constant color temp they're going you're going to be able to bash them around and they're not going to break and they have uh, so when you're spending you know eight thousand dollars worth of cash you want them to to last a, a good amount of time so I find it's a nice mix of a little DIY and a little a good you know theatrical and, uh, you know, Hollywood movie lighting, uh, to be able to bring your package to life. Okay. The next question is about a light. We definitely don't want to be bashing around. So this comes from Ahmed and it says, dear Mr. Shane, first of all, I want to thank you very much for helping us. Just want to know your thoughts towards xenon light compared with an Airy M18 because I noticed that you're a fan of this fixture. Okay. I like to put these type of questions in there because it's very specific and I want to be able to educate you all on lights and their specific uses. Now, the xenon light compared to an M18 is very, very different. The xenon is a daylight balanced light that creates the ultimate shaft. The xenon technology came from searchlights back in the day, as well as xenon projectors. And there was this amazing gaffer, Dick Hall, that um, created the xenon light. And I was very good friends with him, and he built the first xenon light for Blade Runner. And he was instrumental in changing the way we perceive light and how we use light with this genre that he really created with Blade Runner. And those were these little makeshift 2K Xenons that he just panned around uh, uh, within the space. They were like the searchlights that were from the spaceships when he went into his that one building that had the, the cage elevators going up. Those were the Xenons that were you know, crisscrossing and panning around uh, within there like it was, you know, searchlights that are, were going by, you know, from the, the different you know, spaceships that were flying above. These are very specific lights that, you know, you can use to do a lot of different things, but I use mainly xenons to create a searchlight, uh, some kind of a spotlight that's mounted to a tower. I used it in um, Terminator Salvation. When they escape from the minefield, they're running and the searchlight is tracking them on like a 60 foot tower. And it's uh, lighting them as they run across the minefield. And also that searchlight is aiding uh, a guy with a 50 caliber uh, machine gun that's just blowing everything up around 
found them. And then they end up decoying the searchlight and our actress in the film, Moon Bloodgood, takes out the searchlight. So that's one application where I have used the xenon. The xenon light is creates wonderful, beautiful shafts of light. But it creates them on an angle. When you take a xenon and you tilt it straight down, so say you're creating a, a very high shaft of light, the xenon is this intense gas, and the gas will dance around because it's a parabolic mirror that is behind it. It's not a brushed aluminum reflector. It is a mirror. And by the xenon being that parabolic mirror now creates this perfect shaft of light, anything that the gases are dancing and creating any type of difference within the the light levels, that actually looks like your shaft of light is moving. And that's a a true giveaway. You don't want uh, a shaft of light that is supposed to be godlike rays or whatever you want to be to be dancing around. Um, the Into the Badlands that we are launching next week, you're going to see these amazing shafts of light that I have in this Versailles Club. And I didn't use xenons for the perfect reason is a xenon has a fan in it, and that fan is very loud. So it's very difficult to use them when you're shooting sound. And at the angle that I wanted these shafts to come in at, I felt they would probably dance and move because of the xenon gas. So I use 2K and 5K mole beams and with blue on them to mimic kind of a xenon style light. So ever since the mole beams have been created, I've been using xenons less and less because the xenons were very cool for a lot of my rock video days. I was using xenons to, I'd lay them on the ground and I'd strafe like a wall. And what's so cool about it is creates the hardest shadow in the world. So you can create like these really, like all of a sudden, uh, imagine if you put a xenon on the, on the ground and you raced it along a wall, it would only light like a 16 to 18 inches of that wall just on the bottom. And the shadow from a xenon matches sunlight like I've never seen anything. It is the perfect match to sun. The problem being is, though, that it has a hole in the center of it because that's where the xenon bulb is. So imagine the xenon bulb is mounted in the center of the light and the parabolic mirror pushes the light around the xenon bulb, but there's still a hole, a donut, as we called it, that's kind of a little warmer uh, because of the gases within that xenon bulb and it creates a hole in the light. So projecting that onto a face to simulate sunlight is is not going to be very good. But taking it and maybe putting Hanover Frost, which I use a ton of, and you shoot that through Hanover Frost, you take the donut out, so you lose the, the donut by using the Hanover Frost, and it creates a very nice hard sun source uh, that can mimic and, and play perfectly in the background. But like I 
said, with all my feature work that I've been doing, I've been staying away from the Xenons because of their fans and the, the way they cool the light. It's very loud. So I've really embraced the 2K mole beams. Now, back to the original question of an M18 comparison to a Xenon. Well, the M18 will never shaft like a Xenon light because it doesn't have a parabolic mirror reflector. It has a reflector that looks mirrored, but it has like four or five different uh, angles and layers of reflectivity that bounce it all around. So uh, it's not a perfect mirrored image, but it's, it's, it's basically meant to be able to spot and flood and spread this light out and make it as intense as heck as well. So spotting a, an M18 in, will you get a shaft? Yes. Uh, will you get it to look like a Xenon? No, it won't have the crispness and the sharpness and the, the absolute beautiful feeling of what that Xenon would look like. But does the M18 have a fan in it? No. Is it a cinematic uh, light, not a stage light? So you can use it uh, with more applications. You can bounce it. You can diffuse it. You can do all these different things with it. The Xenon is a little more limited based on the fact that it has a fan in the head, which means you can't get it very close. Now, I've I've used the Xenon to bounce light uh, from way back, you know, bouncing it into, uh, I would put a, a big source, like a 12 by 12 or a 12 by 20 up overhead instead of rigging balloons and then fire a xenon up into that bounce. And it creates a, a very beautiful quality of light because you can flood and spot the xenon out. So you can have it really spread a lot or you can you can spot it down into and and actually move it around to specific areas that you might want to highlight as a top source unit where the xenon is a little more specific. Okay. Great answer, Shane. <laughs> Moving on to the next question from Belgium. What I love the most about our circle is that we're so global and different things are happening around the world, and it's really neat to understand what other filmmakers are doing, the similarities and the unique elements depending on what marketplace you're in. So, hi, Shane. First, Many thanks for creating the Inner Circle to share your wisdom with us. We're shooting a low-budget slasher horror movie next summer, and I was wondering if you could give us some tips and tricks to create a professional horror film look with limited gear access. What would be your go-to lighting package to create a nighttime horror vibe? We only have exterior woods and exterior interior house scenes. Other more general tips to set yourself up for success with a limited budget, limited amount of shooting days, and the use of tight interior spaces of a real location. Greetings from Belgium. 
All right. I love the horror genre. When I was a kid growing up, I was so into all the Friday the 13th movies and and Halloween. I thought John Carpenter is just a an incredible revolutionary director. Back then, his ideas of how to create suspense and an intrigue and and the jump. We always talked about I was doing this um, horror film that's going to be out on Netflix, I think, fairly soon called The Bad Sitter. And we would always talk about the the styles of, of horror. Like, do we want it to be a Sean Cunningham style or do we want it to be a John Carpenter style? John Carpenter style is you see what's going to happen to you first. And the which gets the audience is like, oh, my God, he's right behind you. He's going to kill you. Right. That's the John Carpenter. And then the Sean Cunningham was more the cat jumping through the window style of of, you know, shock. So when we were doing that horror film, I was always like, now, is this a John Carpenter style or are we talking Sean Cunningham? Because Sean Cunningham did the first Friday the 13th. I always reference the first ones, not the 90th. Uh, so, and I had the pleasure of working with Sean Cunningham. He was uh, an awesome uh, man to, to meet. And I loved picking his brain back in the day, just uh, how he created Friday the 13th and that whole, because it was such a wonderful time in my life of just going to these horror films and just getting the shit scared out of me. All right. Now, now to your question, I would say, first off, I would want to use a camera that's very good in low light. And that camera wants to be something that energizes light. So maybe the Canon series might be a really great one to use for this. If you are going with red, then, uh, you know, you're going to be limited about, you know, 1600 or 2000 ISO. And you're going to want to be able to use a lot of practical light. And practical light is going to be your friend in pulling off this on a much lower budget. So in regards to your home environment, you're going to be able to use, you know, your lamps and practicals. And, and you know, I would DIY a lot of this stuff in regards to clamp lights and, you know, different things that you can get at Ikea and, uh, and Home Depot. I use a lot of these uh, dust to dawn fixtures to create my depth at night working around a house. Obviously, you're going to be people are going to be going from the woods area into your home and you can use these dust to dawn fixtures that are either metal halide. That's what I would go for with this, keeping a colder tone. I just, you know, you can wire them so cheaply and, you know, there's a. There's a, there's a sensor on top of the light. It's, it's, uh, sensor is so it turns on when the sun goes away. So you, I black tape that. So it always feels like the sun is gone. And, you know, that, that snaps into the top of this metal halide source. 
and it gives you the ability to use these. And I just put them on stands way in the distance. So you don't even see the stands. It's so, you know, deep in the background and that it illuminates depth very cheaply. You can get these things for under $60, $70. So I get like four or five of those that I can just disperse around. Now, when you're lighting night in the woods, you obviously need a backlight. Now, that backlight, I've done a lot of different low-budget ways uh, to do this. One way is to, you know, rent scaffolding that is very inexpensive because you need to be able to get that light up high enough so it uh, is not just flaring the crap out of your lens for all your night work. And you need to illuminate uh, the the uh, forest to some extent. Now, there's two ways to go about this. You can go reality and rig lights. I've rigged them to trees where I uh, take like a 30-foot extension ladder, and I, you know, go up there, obviously, safely. Uh, you want to be very safe with all this, and you um, attach some kind of mounting point to the tree, and then you put your source up there in the tree. Uh, if you have the ability to build scaffolding, then you put the scaffolding, and then you kind of hide the scaffolding with, like, tree branches and stuff like that. Uh, there's the other tactic that you kind of throw reality out and you put the light on the ground and you put it low on the ground and you use the, the use of smoke to kind of create a texture and that creates depth and it also creates the ability to silhouette. And this texture within the forest is going to then now, once you light the smoke, you don't have to light so much because the smoke being lit is now creating silhouettes in the foreground. And then you can play with, I usually use a big ambient bounce to bring up the, the keys on their faces. So you got a, a nice base level that's still very dark and it feels like they're, you know, in the middle of it in the, the forest in a moonlit scenario. I usually set my color temperature, my camera, if I'm using tungsten lights, I'm usually at 27 or 2900 Kelvin and my, my lights are, my tungsten lights are at 3200. So it's slightly creating this, just a slight blue and that blue turns to gray. It's amazing. Tungsten lights are the best way that I illuminate uh, night sequences. So um, anytime I'm moonlighting, that's not into the Badlands where I went for a, a very kind of cyan blue-green tone. But all my other movies, I'm lighting with tungsten light sources and changing the color temp of my camera to 2900 Kelvin, and it creates a beautiful blue, a, a kind of a, a gray. It's a gray tone, and that's what moonlight looks to me. I, I've been out at night, you know, swimming in the pool when all there is is just the moon and uh, the full moon and how it casts through the, the trees and how it, it, and it feels gray. And so that's what I've really embraced is that gray light. 
So what I would suggest for you is to get a camera that's very good in low light situations. Get a, a set of lenses that's going to enable you to be in more of the two ra range so you can take advantage of as much practical light as possible. In the forest, you can try even day for night sometimes, uh, and you could make that a look. Uh, now, day for night is a, is a very um, difficult process to uh, master, but uh, I would say shoot some tests, and then maybe you can shoot a lot of it without any use of light sources, uh, you know, ringing them to trees and all that stuff. You just go for a day for night kind of vibe, and maybe that is your vibe for your film if you can't afford the other things that I talked about. But if you can afford somewhat of what I talked about, whether you're putting lights on the ground or trying to ring them on scaffolding, the use of smoke uh, is going to give you a wonderful feel and texture within the forest and uh, help you illuminate that forest as well. I remember when I did Act of Valor, we had a, a very, very small crew. At the most, sometimes 10 people we're going to, and that's camera operators, you know, lighting grip producers and directors uh, is the 10 people. So, you know, we were lighting massive light night exteriors and I was doing it with these simple techniques is putting one huge tungsten source. Well, as big as we could get, I think I used a mini nine light in these jungles and the jungles were illuminated and I put them, I, you know, we did the, the, um, mounted it to the tree. And, and when we could, we put it on scaffolding and that enabled us to give us the depth and dimension and using some smoke gave us the feel of uh, texture in the air and a great moodiness to pull off your horror genre. But horror is all about darkness. And uh, I find that I'm lighting backgrounds that are kind of uh, lighter in shade. So you can then create silhouettes in the foreground and that creates a, a spooky mood to it. I wouldn't be worried about illuminating everywhere. Something that's very cool that I did on 1114 as well is just letting the blackness take you in and suck you in. So it's like not illuminating everything is kind of a good thing. So it just falls off into black. If you take the Coen brothers film, Blood Simple, that's a really great one to look at. Blood Simple did exactly that. They didn't have the money. It was a very, very low budget film. It was their first film. And the, you can see how just, it just falls off to black. They're only illuminating the scene and everything else just falls off. So that's a great one to, to view. And the Coen Brothers' first film for you is a reference on that. All right. Okay, Shane. Well, wow. This has been a really fast hour. I've learned a ton. Yeah, I, this is so much fun. I love, I love having Lydia here. She always is a is a breath of fresh air and always has such a, a great energy and, and a positivity to my life and having her right by my side in our makeshift 
podcast studio of this small little closet is uh, is always a very um, welcoming time. It's so much fun. And honestly, Shane never talks to me about lighting. So I'm sitting here learning as much as you all are. And it's so much fun. So just a quick thing, Inner Circle members, please continue to submit your questions, what you want to learn about, what any way that we can serve you better, give feedback in general about the circle, not just the podcast, but what you like, what you would see more of, maybe what's not resonating. I'm totally open to hearing it all. So there's no ego here. It's just about making it better. And um, Shane and I are going to be back together again next month with you in February. And this is so much fun for us. So please give us your feedback on the joint podcasting. Some months, obviously, it's it's more heavily technical, which is not my area of expertise. <laughs> so as this month was, but it's still been really enjoyable for me sitting here next to Shane. So have a wonderful January. Set your intentions and goals. Um, We're going to be talking a little bit more about that in February, just getting yourself set up for the year. And one other thing I want to add is this month in January, we're doing a different vibe on the Onset series. And I really want your feedback on that. I would love it on the Facebook page, your feedback to the new style and uh, or any feedback that you can send to Anne at HurlbutVisuals.com. We want to see if you like this format. I've only done two this way, so January and February will be this style to see if you all like it. And if you do, then we're going to continue this format. If you like it the way it originally was, then we'll go back to that. So again, what we're trying to do is always challenge ourselves at Robot Visuals, and I'm always constantly trying to think of unique ways to educate you and to immerse you in uh, different styles. And I think this way that I was uh, coming up with uh, will be really cool, but I want to hear from all of our members and what you like. All right, that concludes our January 2017 podcast, and have a wonderful day. What helps you become a better filmmaker? Knowledge, practice, consistency. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. If you want your questions answered, join us at shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20 and join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.